Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized Crumbs, a series of mortals meant to lead you like a hungry velociraptor from one season of Authorized to the next. Like the deeply traumatized child, Eric Kirby, you'll return to the place you fear most again and again for reasons you can barely comprehend. In this metaphor, Authorized is your trauma. Not great. Congrats. We're your hosts, a loose coalition of survival documentary enthusiasts. (laughs) My name is Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Overby. Jurassic Park Adventures Prey is a novel written by Scott Siensen. It is an original sequel to Siensen's own Jurassic Park 3 novelization and its interquel Survivor. The story follows Eric Kirby, finally safe in Enid, Ohio, but unable to stop dreaming of his adventure on Isla Sorna. When Alan Grant uses Eric's testimony to get approval for a dinosaur preservation base, Eric leverages the opportunity into a return trip to the island that was once his home and prison. Little do Alan Grant and Eric's fretful parents know that the threat this time will not be the dinosaurs, but a group of teenagers intent on making a low-budget documentary on Isla Sorna. Will Eric and Alan be able to reach these intruders in time to save them? Or will the teens' internal relationship dynamics cause them to self-destruct before any dinosaur can reach them? And why do these books engage in such aggressive Paul Kirby erasure? (laughs) Jurassic Park Adventures Prey was written by Scott Siensen, based on the motion picture Jurassic Park 3, written by Peter Buchman and Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, itself based on the characters created by Michael Crichton. It was followed by one further adventure, Flyers. Prey was published in 2001 by Universal Studios. I'm always tripped up by that... The fact that Alexander Payne was on the writing staff of Jurassic Park 3. Anywho, our guest today, a writer about the internet, not about the internet, but like about as in like around, but maybe about, maybe sometimes about, and one of the hosts of the podcast, The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, Mel Castle, how you doing today? Hi, I'm good. I'm very excited to be here. I haven't yet written about the internet, but as you say, I am about, I'm frolicking around the internet with my writing. Would it be possible, though, to basically write anything now that doesn't reference something about internet reaction or or what have you? We're all sort of writing about the internet. I feel like it's such a big question when you're a writer, are you going to reference modern technology 
or not. I think I have some texting and some stories. It's really tough, you know? <laughs> I don't, I'm not quite... This is also... This is a totally different uh, thing than I was thinking about. You're, you're one of the only writers we've had on that writes fiction. Oh, that feels very special. Thank you. So, but that's that's super interesting. You don't, for the most part, include sort of uh, uh, the 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 internet world in in your plot. I hate proper nouns. Like I hate having to reference brands or anything that mm-hmm. is contemporary. And this is not like a unique personal thing. This is, I think, something that so many fiction writers have to think about and struggle with. I it just sure. feels unnatural to then be like. Maria Googled what could make my cat throw up and saw that there were several results. It just, it feels, it feels weird. Definitely. But there's no, there's no good way around that because if you replace it with a made up word, that seems perhaps stupid. We just need to, we just need to take some time because it's not weird to write about someone being on the phone. So it's just, it's just a weird technological hangover, I think. Technology is moving faster than our little evolution can keep up. And it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. I think this is really relevant to (laughs) what we're going to be talking about because I think we can hook it back into the hubris of man and technology Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how things change, even though we try to recapture the archaic joys of certain, certain types of technology. Do you see what I'm doing here? You want to take it and run with it? (laughs) (laughs) We are uh, sort of recording these back to back as two, episodes first on prey and then on the sequel flyers but i will say here that there is an egregious understanding of the internet in flyers <laughs> it, it to the point where it's like i don't think this this i don't think scott Sanson has seen a computer <laughs> that's very like faithful to the alan grant mindset i suppose yeah yeah absolutely right that, that's that's a an approach to writing is let's write as if we are the character we're writing mm-hmm. about Method maybe writing. not the most enlightened yeah <laughs> mel uh prior to coming on this podcast which was your entire life up until about three minutes ago what uh what is your relationship to jurassic park as an ip oh it is And I say this every time someone asks me about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is the movie that I have seen the most number of times in my life out of all other movies. So it was hugely formative for me. I was not old enough to see it in theaters and to appreciate the zeitgeist that that happened. Um, And it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think of another movie release event that calls that sort of mania to mind that i have lived through and i and i really didn't experience it as a kid i was like four when it came out or something like that but i watched Mm -hmm. it on vhs over and over and over wore out the tape um i've never read the books the michael Crichton books that is um and i've seen yes i've seen all of the movies at least once uh, but the first one is the one that holds the most cherished place in my heart and there is a an episode of a patreon like spinoff from the losers club on jurassic park it's like three to four hours long where me and the other hosts go really deep on that movie um so if you want my in-depth thoughts on it that's the place to look but basically i was a dinosaur obsessed kid and remain a dinosaur obsessed adult so we've we've made you read here spinoffs of a jurassic park sequel that's not super well respected i think i think is the the common opinion how do you feel about uh jurassic park 2 and jurassic park 3 I am a huge Lost World defender, apologist, whatever. Yes. I, I think it's, yes, I think it's great. Um, 
and to this day i will i will often be like hold on to something like remembering the trailer hanging over the cliff um julianne moore jeff goldblum an atypically dour Vince Vaughn. Like he's, it's not, he's sort of there for comic relief, but he's not really there for comic relief at the same time. Um, I love it. I think it's great. Um, you got the, the renowned character actor whose name I can't recall the, like the, the guy who plays the game warden or the, who's out there to, to kill the T-Rex. Yeah. Um, he's amazing. Three has never struck me in the same key heart place. It's always been, I think I think in listening to the episode that you guys did on it, I was very much in agreement with, you know, this seems a little made for TV. It, the fact that they didn't have room to stretch their legs with it and it's only a tight 90 minutes doesn't actually do it too much service. And trying to make the Spinosaurus really cool felt more heretical than anything else. Like it, it didn't feel, and maybe that's nostalgia goggles and like we're, we're the ones being like, it's the kids who are, maybe people love the Spinosaurus. I don't know. Have we talked to any Gen Zers about the Spinosaurus? No. Um, <laughs> None of them will come it, on our the Spinosaurus is huge on TikTok. But, uh, um, no, I don't, I don't love it. But I'm always astounded to remember that William H. Macy is in it. And um, the, it's crazy. That is the thing ab- about both sequels, two and three, is you look back on them and they're just populated by people we have utmost respect for now. And at the time, I'm sure people were saying, oh, this guy, you know, he's no Goldblum or whatever. It's and, still, it's uh, post-Fargo, like, I don't know, like, he's he's around. Um, you know, we simply must, in this day and age, say, like, it's a blockbuster movie. You get real actors for those. You used to get real actors yeah. for blockbusters. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't hate Definitely. Jurassic Park 3. I think the Pteranodon scene in particular is pretty good. Um, and I know that the thing on the- Which one is that? In Jurassic Park, the when when they're in the, the yeah. bird cage, quote unquote. Oh, in the bird cage. Um, so yeah. Hannah, okay. for the next episode, and I'm yeah. picking up on this too. That's how we have to say the word that we have to say one million times. Okay. Pteranodon. <laughs> yeah, pteranodon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I like dinosaurs, but I'm like, yep, the flyy one, the one with flyers. The T-Rex. Yep. And as we are reminded over and over not to jump the gun, they aren't dinosaurs. They are lizards. They also have their own given names. So we can... <laughs> we, we will spoiler, get to that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. Every pteranodon has a name and they have a sexual political hierarchy. They do. Uh, <laughs> they are socioculturally developed. I, I think I'm probably the biggest Jurassic Park 3 defender of on the, the many hosts that sort of uh, come through this podcast and comparing them to the new trilogy which obviously everyone rags on the new trilogy for its content how about just the fact that those movies are flabby as hell yeah they're so long and there's like entire sections of each jurassic world that i've like forgotten uh and jurassic park 3 at least has the common sense to be 88 minutes long and know that the action is what we're all there for yeah Writing-wise, you can see it as a linkage, I think, between the past franchise and the now franchise in that the writing is just weaker, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, I totally it's forgot. King that Michael Crichton touch. Yeah. Like, I don't mean to, like, really build him up as a guy who knew how to write stories, because, like, some of them are messy, <laughs> but, like... There's really something to, like, Jurassic Park 1 and Jurassic Park The Lost World have a Crichton backbone, and he, like helped 
that that clearly helped the filmmakers make movies that are like rich and interesting and have some scientific backing where like three through lost worlds are just like i don't know <laughs> doing their thing yeah not well the, the pacing and the length really is huge too they just have an epic feel and i had forgot i always forget to mention the san francisco i think it's san francisco part of the mm-hmm. lost world which is like to me san diego san diego sorry incredible like i i love that we bring the, <laughs> the rex back to the states in that one so yeah it does feel also a little strange to just be going back to the island yet again in the third installment and to have a strange dream sequence kick us off in the plane i don't um follow sports at all but one time when i was working in logistics i had a, a meeting with people from san diego and they were all talking about san diego and they all said Oh yeah, I live over here. It's right near the the Petco, I think is what they said. And somebody else was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I we've got another thing when I get back home and it's like it's a little south of the Petco." And eventually I had to cut in. I, am I mixing it up or is it that or Pet Smart? I had to cut in and be like, "Why are you all defining <laughs> your lives in relation to a pet store?" And the guy, everyone laughed at me. <laughs> and um then one of them said they have great deals. No, I'm kidding. He was like, <laughs> he was like it's the name of the, the football stadium. Oh, I don't. <laughs> um, so um, I like the, the San Diego sequence in two a lot. I, Hannah, am I, am I putting words in your mouth to say that you like two, but you feel like it falls off there? Yeah, I think that I like the scene if it was like snipped off the movie. Like I like it on its own, but... The, the story's over, and then you go to San Diego. I don't think you need it. I find it a little bit um, extraneous. He's got the doghouse dangling from his mouth. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> that stuff's fun. I just feel He's like... drinking from the pool. The, yeah, I like it, but like the movie's over. And also, Vince Vaughn isn't in that part, and I miss him yeah. when he's not in the movie, so... Mel. Andrew. Initial impressions, like broad strokes, Jurassic Park Adventures, Prey. Now, you you read... Uh, what the novelization of three I as did, well? Yes. So you're coming off a little bit of of Eric Kirby characterization. How'd you how'd you feel about Prey? I thought that Prey was such a staggering, a staggeringly delightful example of how books for a certain age range function as deranged wish fulfillment. That it was just so <laughs> fun, like I, like I I love the impossible challenge of how do we get how do we get this kid back to the island and teamed up with dr grant again because of course that's what you know a teen reading this book is going to want and they're also going to probably relate to eric kirby's desire to be like perhaps i have peaked in life and i must go back to the point at which i was most (laughs) in control and most revered and so having that as a conceit and a hoop for the writer to jump through there it's just delightful i loved seeing the backflips that Scott Siensen must perform. It's the most high stakes and low stakes thing imaginable simultaneously because kids will kind of just go with whatever you put on the page and and not question it. And as adults, we have to keep that in mind as we're reading. Um, So it does feel like a unique genre exercise in that way. And I, I love how that continues throughout the whole book, things that should be treated really gravely have to have a certain lightness to them not only because the book is very short but also because the way that children's minds work you just sort of bypass the seriousness of life in order to get to 
the neat wrap up of the narrative that is like a really interesting genre exercise to me so on that like meta level i thought this was an incredibly enjoyable book i don't think i'm qualified to be like it's good or bad like as a kid's book but um i love the exercise of it i will say there are parts that like i'm sure we will touch on uh that i have a lot of questions about um but i in general don't feel qualified to poke many holes and just and just want to say that it was so fun to read uh what felt like a passion project not just for the franchise but for the, the art of like being a child reading about dinosaurs in connection to a popular franchise we uh, do a lot of these sort of uh, spin-off books that are essentially an author being asked by a studio this is going to be a huge movie we want to juice a little bit more money out of it so could you write three sequels to the sixth sense that sort of thing and I have to say, after reading many of these, first of all, they're they're so much fun because they they feel like fanfic. Yes, they don't feel like real books. <laughs> they feel like you know they 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 capture that feeling of walking out. Uh, Hannah like squirmed at me dissing fanfiction. Um, it's <laughs> rude. It's dismissive. It's rude. Of a perfectly valid thing. No, and I'm here I, to put I, that I, on the record. But Hannah, you're also assuming that me saying that something doesn't feel like a real book is a diss, which is maybe an assumption on your part. Uh, it just doesn't feel like something that would be mass-produced is maybe what I'm getting at. It feels like you're, like, getting a, a mass-produced paperback that, like, is... It, it feels like it's sprung out of someone's mind. It feels mind. incredibly like, as, I I could... personal. Like, and we know that this author does feel yes. some sort of personal connection to Eric Kirby, given his ongoing obsession with this character that is reflected in the prose. But, it, yeah, it feels it feels deeply connected to the will and the taste of like one mind that has that has fixated on a franchise and on a character within the franchise yeah and, and i i i really don't mean to put it down i think it's it it captures that feeling of walking out of jurassic park 3 especially if you are a kid and going wow that was so fun i wish i could hang out with eric kirby and here's the thing child you can <laughs> there's four eric kirby books I think this honestly is rude to Ian Malcolm's daughter in The Lost World. That girl is equally interesting as Eric Kirby, and she didn't get any spinoff books. In the Jurassic Park 3 novelization, now readers have heard me read this passage already, but it's important to me to, to reestablish this before we do these two episodes, mm -hmm. which is, as this book ends, we're getting all of this development on Eric. Uh, it says, Eric sat nestled between his parents. He looked to Billy, then to Alan, who smiled and nodded. Missed Billy, by the way. Ugh. Turning to the window, Eric looked out on the island, his mind filled with unanswerable questions. He had come here a boy filled with dreams of adventure. What he had experienced had changed him. Could he exist in the world outside again? Or would his dreams be filled with this island for the rest of his life? Sort of sets up these books. But I will say, in Survivor, <laughs> he... Ends the book going, I don't know who I am. I don't know what my home is. I feel adrift. And then a much more contemplative at the end of Jurassic Park 3, you know, will I be okay leaving this place? I feel like the following two books, Prey and Flyers, don't know what the heck to do with him on an emotional level. I mean, uh, it, so it, just for the listener, Hannah read Flyers and, and hasn't read Prey. So, so she, I have many questions about what happens in Prey to get us we're gonna, to flyers. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be uh, letting you in on 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 what goes on. But 
Mel, what? How do you feel about the handling of Eric in in Prey? I mean, I couldn't, with a gun to my head, tell you what his arc is. Sure, I actually thought the most charitable and generous reading of the emotional arc is that it is quite nuanced in that he feels an inexplicable, perhaps even borderline supernatural tie to this <laughs> island. <laughs> um, and again, that's like such a mature sort of theme that he can't let go of this traumatic experience that shaped him so profoundly um, in that it was dangerous, but also the setting where he felt most independent. And by the end of it, like he had a hold on like his role in a place, right? Like he really had developed into someone who felt at home on the island and with its many dangers so that to go anywhere else felt like a flattening of his reality. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a hugely adult theme to like deal with. Um, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, like you are done being in the army or something. Like, it's very like, you know, you, you stopped doing this life-threatening, engaging work and now you don't know what to do with yourself. And I, I guess I, <laughs> if I'm trying to remember the arc of, of Prey, he sort of ends up, um, you know, going back engaging again with life-threatening events and realizing again in an incredibly adult manner that life-threatening adventure and the fame and power and, and sense of control associated with it are not attainable as as constants and are not good ideas to pursue he, he does go home feeling like, oh, okay, like I'm probably done with the island. Like I, my sure. answer is that I was wrong. Like to, to like think that this is a place where I could have any control over the environment. <laughs> so that is my read of the arc. And I was pretty impressed by the fact that Scott Sienson had to, had to deal with that kind of thinking on the level of a teenage brain. So the plot of this book is he goes back to the island? Yes, the plot of this book. <laughs> sorry, this I'm book sorry. opens incredibly. This book opens with Eric Kirby and Alan Grant preparing to give a UN speech <laughs> on what's gone on on the island and what they're proposing to do in the future. These so let's let's jump in. Yeah, yeah. go he for it. He wants to go back to. Uh, or, or Alan wants this to go back to establish. This doesn't sound like Alan. <laughs> I know. I know. Yes. This is a problem I, again, not to jump ahead, but I had in flyers. I was like, what is he doing there? This the is only, not my the Alan only, Grant. The only consistent characterization has to be Eric Kirby because that, <laughs> who's the, who, who, that's who the author cares about. Everyone else <laughs> are orbiting satellites to the emotional <laughs> landscape of Eric Kirby. So Alan Grant wants to go back to the island because they talk about at the beginning how it's only 22 square miles and like basically the predators outnumber the prey and they're going to just wipe out the island and then themselves die because they'll have nothing else to eat. And so the motivation in Alan Grant's defense is to set up uh, a, 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 a station where they can basically help life continue there, help life flourish, uh, which is an interesting conceit. Whether it's within Alan Grant's character, I, I think is definitely debatable. Uh, who, though, in uh, just to bring in Jurassic, what's what are they called again? Jurassic Kingdom, Jurassic World, Kingdom, Jurassic the Kingdom Fallen fell. World, it fell. Globe. That that's the one I'm talking about. Where <laughs> yep. it fell. Yeah. And 
who's pushing for preservation there? Because that one's about rescuing the dinosaurs. Is this the He's most recent one? No, the most recent one no. is Dominion. Oh, well, it's Rafe Spall, who is um, a Hammond grandson or some, or like the other guy who we're told in those movies did Jurassic Park who isn't Hammond. He's like his nephew. And he's like, we got to save the dinosaurs. Wink. I'm going to use them for military purposes. Wink. <laughs> I think is what happens in that movie that I saw once and didn't like. Right. Okay. But Does that help? I, I agree. <laughs> Very much outside the character of Alan Grant to be like, because this is his speech. I've got it right here. He's practicing it for Eric. Uh, At only 22 square miles, this island is not set up to support its dinosaur population for long. He gestured broadly to his imaginary audience. The amount of predators compared to prey available is a major concern. The predator population is too high, and the plant-eating populace may run out of food if conditions are not monitored. Eric crossed his arms over his chest as Alan used a handkerchief to dab the sweat from his brow. Humans created these dinosaurs and their out-of-balance ecosystem. So it is humanity's responsibility to restore the balance. Otherwise, the dinosaurs of Isla Sorna face extinction. He just never struck me as this altruistic. It's so important to note, too, that in this scene and throughout the rest of all of these the the status games between Grant and Kirby are so interesting. So yeah. often Grant is literally being lectured, taught like by this 13 year old in this scene. He is the nervous one who like has to give the speech to the UN. And he's like, Oh, let me, let me do it in front of you. And Eric is like, yeah, go ahead, practice it. I'll tell you what's working and what's not working. And it's such a weird dynamic. Like he, the adults around Eric Kirby, like have to bend to his will because they cannot possibly comprehend his transformation (laughs) and like this is just a weird example of him being superior to alan grant in so many ways it's it's more than alan grant it's more than just alan is bad at socializing and bad at computers and bad at being a human in the world and it's it's more that eric kirby is a superhuman presence (laughs) i feel (laughs) that he just kind of subjugates all other presences well he he turns the table on on Grant really hard in this scene where Alan Grant has basically, I mean, is this a cool move? The the book just glosses over it. They're like, this is what needs to be done. Is it a cool move to use a traumatized child to try to get funding for your project? I don't know. It is not a cool move. I mean, Eric Kirby nominally, like verbally loves dinosaurs. So he seems pretty gung ho about it, but it seems a little fucked up to me. The The way the scene plays out is basically, just for Hannah's benefit, is basically Eric is like, okay, so you're going to give this speech, and then I'm going to give a speech about how I survived there. And, and, and the purpose of my speech is that people will understand that since a young boy could survive there for months and months, it is feasible to set up some sort of base, which makes sense. But then he goes... And I'm not going to give that speech that you need me to give unless you let me return in some capacity. So he's black. He's blackmailing his friend. (laughs) Okay, so a couple questions. Uh, Have his parents put him in therapy yet? Like, are there points in the book where he's like, I have to go to therapy twice a week? Therapy is never mentioned. That's not Mm -hmm. good parenting. No mouth service to therapy. To therapy. Like, I... At least try it. At least try and get him to talk to somebody about it. Does Alan Grant have any adult friends in this book? Like at all? 
There are too many adults in this book, which we won't. Oh, really? has a lot of employees. Yeah. Okay. I, and I but feel Billy like is not in the book. Billy's at never all. mentioned. Therapists are never mentioned. And if the UN scene is like a little far fetched, like I think the, <laughs> I think the following scene, I think it's the following scene, is even more far fetched, which is the scene where Eric has to convince his parents to send him back to the island. <laughs> and they agree. They're yes, just like, of course, that's first good he's for you. Eavesdropping on them, and they're talking about how concerned they are about him. Oh, dear. Again, he has to be this, like, superior force that knows everything that's going on. Like, he is also judging his family's life and, like, their relationship all the time. Like, he's 13. No, like, he's, I know he's been through some shit, but, like, <laughs> and that ages you up and that forces you into a level of maturity at some point. But, like, he was, like, a feral child for, like, three months. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> he, so, Those don't match. Uh, Mel, the only reason that that's not the next scene is because they're doing some sort of intercutting where they show Alan on the island alone first. Okay. Like without he goes Eric. alone? No, he's, no, he's, he's with setting oh, up his... He's got a crew. Okay. Sorry. And Should have they introduce his very robust crew of employees uh, kind of slowly. The only one we meet this time is... Well, two of them. We meet Dave Stevens, uh, who... Mel, how would you describe Dave Stevens? He's transportation director. He is surly and I guess somewhat wry, but he's established early on as the man nobody likes. Does he get eaten by dinosaurs? Actually, here's a real question. Does anybody get eaten by dinosaurs yes. in this one? Yes. One okay. Guy. <laughs> one guy, just one guy? Okay. More more important than than Dave Stevens, I think, is Deborah Holland, who also gets. Oh, introduced. definitely. Yes. The the only reason I'm fixated on Stevens is, is to get to Deborah. Hannah, it, well, as Hannah has sort of pointed out, like when you have a character who's a dick in a children's book, you expect some manner of comeuppance, and it can be that he's eaten by a dinosaur, or it can be that some government head is like your decision is the bad one or whatever, but it just doesn't happen. There's like uh, passages in this book. This is a quick one where uh, Alan is talking to him about transportation, getting all everything they need to the Island. He goes, is there a problem? Depends on your definition of the word. Steven said in his lowest growl during the past few weeks, I've moved four boatloads of equipment to Isla Sorna. This makes number five. Yes. Alan said, and we're ahead of schedule, Stephen said. Every delivery has gone off without a hitch. All the construction and production heads are reporting green lights all the way. And everyone seems to be in a good mood. Chipper, even. His thick lips curled up in disgust. Chipper. I hate that word. Alan was waiting for the bad news. Stevens leaned in close. It can't last. This guy sounds good. I like him. Yeah, I like him, too. He's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, he's just... He's just a pessimist jerk, but like he doesn't do anything unforgivable. He, that's it. I don't know. Nobody yeah, likes he's him. He's really he's he sits down with uh, Eric while Eric's watching. I think a Christmas Carol at one point, and he's like, "I love Scrooge. He has a worldview I agree with. Great guy. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um, and then we have Deborah Holland. Uh, Mel, what's the what's Deborah Holland, Deborah? security chief. Her, the whole thing that you need to know about Deborah is that she's not yet 30, but she looks incredibly young. <laughs> so young, so attractive, 
why this is mentioned every time she <laughs> enters into the text is not clear to me other than i don't know like to to tease some sort of like also there's a young-ish security director who's like female and that's cool like she's not meant to be anyone's romantic interest but we need to know that she's like young and hot i'm well so you can't have a woman it. in a story who isn't hot let's be serious about this you know as the one man i want to say i know that it's like indicative of of misogyny and 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 sort of <laughs> fucked up ideals to write women where you're like you know she had huge breasts and blah 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 i know that's bad but it is always funny to me to imagine <laughs> some guy who's like getting turned on by his own made-up lady mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean are it's, we meant to be like oh she's like ellie she's like young and beautiful i and think blonde, so and you're supposed to be like oh well that's a character i understand the line um, is i've i've written not yet 30 quote but she looked like she was still in college and i'm like why is that an important i think it's because it really jumped out at me too (laughs) and it's not like eric like develops a crush on her and he's like oh it's great that she's so young because maybe we no no but i think it is supposed to be like so maybe if you're like a girl reading this like don't worry there's like a youngish person for you to look up to also like the youth is very important more than the attractiveness is important i don't know Mm, okay what, no, what are her best. qualifications? She's grew up in like game preserves and like Kenya and shit. I think they mention she's got a she's great pretty line. Good at her job. I mean, I'm sure she is. She goes, Eric's clocked more battle hours against dinosaurs than anyone on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> like battle hours are a metric yeah. that they are. They are keeping track of. That sounds like a Mel, good way I'm to so think glad about wild you- animals. I'm so glad you clocked that line. I was like, I was like, am I gonna sound like like wrongheaded if I'm like this is inherently weird and kind of pervy that they were just like she was young, but she looked so young. But she's I'm glad back, that, that she's <laughs> back in flyers and it's still happening. So I noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Her one scene with like, don't forget, she's very young and she's hot. So young. <laughs> she's still there. Um yeah, so d- d- we get the intro to Deborah. Hold on, um, on page eleven, which matters to no one because this book is like unavailable. Deborah Holland had honey blonde hair, a warm, glowing smile, and the sweetest temperament of anyone with whom Alan had ever worked. She was almost thirty, but she looked like she was still in college. Of course, not everything about her was so non-threatening. And then she has like some weapons on her back and stuff. She walks up to Alan. And she goes, it's a pretty day, she said pointedly. Yes, Deborah, Alan responded. And? Kind of a nice day for a stroll, don't you think? As Alan's security chief, Deborah had just delivered a coded message that predators had been sighted via satellite and would be here before the workers could evacuate. She tapped her ear where a small radio device kept her linked to Ray Dixon, the team's communications director, who was monitoring the island from the docked ship. Now, interesting concept that she's talking in coded language to not freak people out. Because he says, I think, on the next page, what, that basically, yeah, she's like, I'm going house shopping. I'm excited to shop for a house. And Ellen Grant goes, how many houses are you considering? And she's like, three (laughs) big houses. (laughs) It's sort of interesting that they're doing that to avoid panic, but it doesn't make any sense because they're 
the only people on the island are like trained professionals and the next thing they do is get on the horn and they're like three (laughs) huge ass dinos coming our way it's very it's very cinematic like i do love when you can tell that the book wants to be like if this was a movie here's what you'd be like seeing from the 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 really quick quippy dialogue and like this is a fun example Mm -hmm. of that and then it seems like it reoccurs to the book that it has to go on being a book with plot that makes sense um but so you can you can imagine this this very charming scene between grant and and deborah with their speaking in code i think i was charmed by it as it happened and then yes like you say andrew i was like okay this doesn't make one lick of sense well you know where it would make sense is in jurassic world Mm -hmm. you'd be like i don't want to freak out the guests the many patrons of this park yeah so it has a purpose i just don't see it here um okay we get back to eric kirby the thing you were talking about earlier mel which is (laughs) eric kirby walks in on his parents arguing about whether he can go back to the island that almost killed him and uh paul's really against it obviously there's no force on earth or in heaven that could make me change my mind about this and the line that jumped out to me You know what happened with me when I was that age, Amanda said. Eric's not going to run off, Paul said. Good golly, Amanda, he's more responsible than that. What a thing to drop. Hidden backstory. I I don't think I even picked up on that. Yeah, she's just like, I ran away as a kid, and I think our our kid would do that. And Paul's like, our kid is better than you. (laughs) So... That's so funny, like an effort to reestablish the dynamic of like, she's off chasing adventure and he loves to stay home and be responsible. <laughs> yeah, it's it seems like these books are just sidelining the parents because that's really the only scene they get in the whole book. Except then in Flyers, as we'll discuss, uh, who's who plays Amanda uh, in three? I want to say Taya Leone. Yeah. It's Taya Leone. Yeah. It is is a main character. She's back. Just She's running fierce. around. Just, yeah. <laughs> they, Universal changed their mind. They're like, we yeah. think we can get her back. Um, hmm. Not since Lost has there been such an incredible turnabout of we need to go back to this very dangerous <laughs> island for absolutely no reason. <laughs> and except this is even harder because you have a 13-year-old saying it instead of a grown man with agency. He has to convince his parents. I don't even remember how he does it. How does he do it, Andrew? Yeah, how does he do it? And does one of his parents go with him? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> what? He's Eric Kirby. He doesn't what? need no stinking parents. Yes, he does. Uh, I like this sentence. Eric dared not tell his parents, but when he closed his eyes at night, he could still smell the island, still feel it, taste it. He'd become a part of it, living there the way he had. Not a healthy relationship. Um, How does he convince them? Also, like, Isla Sorna also has a bunch of buildings already built there. So what does Alan have to build? Like, are they just, like, revamping the Jurassic Park buildings? They're making it more functional. Okay, okay. Sorry, that just occurred to me. Hmm. I don't have a good answer for that very <laughs> legitimate plot hole. They're they're just building new things. Okay, cool. I mean, that's they're right, I guess. Sounds like a waste of money, but okay. Okay. 
Here we go. It's time, isn't it? Eric said. His voice was low and hopeful. He's written you that I could come to the island. Paul nodded slowly. Eric wanted to shout. Almost four years, or I'm sorry, almost four months of what, oh no. He's already gotten the yes at that point. I gotta find the yes. So Alan also approves of him going? Well, he has to, he's been blackmailed. <laughs> oh, he's right. been blackmailed. Jesus Alan Christ, has been blackmailed. I forgot. Holy Although moly, he has a plan kid. of his own. At one point, Alan is like, you can only come given the stipulations that I that I put on this visit. And Eric is like, okay. And Alan says something like, you're gonna wish you hadn't agreed because Alan has, Alan's plan is just that he's gonna have Eric come when nothing is going on. Well, and that's brings good. him for Christmas Smart. break. Yeah. I, oh, this is a Christmas book. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a Christmas. Christ- book. It's a Christmas book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Intrigued. But I, I love the logic of he brings him out there for Christmas break, thinking, oh, we're not going to be doing any excursions to to help the dinosaurs or whatever. And it's like the dinosaurs are still there, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're still doing their thing. Anyway, I'm not. I'm apparently not finding this. But well, so he convinces by the time them. They get to the island. Is it just Alan and Eric? Are they the only? Oh no! Debra? Oh no! <laughs> oh, they're right. There's, there's too many. About, but I thought the whole point was like, there, it's Christmas characters. break. Everybody goes home. Do you want me to do ah. the whole, just just the employees to start? Let's do just the, empl- just so the employees. So Mel and I were texting before this. Sorry, I'm talking over <laughs> everyone. Um, very unusual for me. <laughs> um, Why Mel and I mouse, were texting typically. before this. And uh, sh- and we we discovered that we both made like a list of every character in this book and what their role was because there's just too damn many. <laughs> and I and I only am one trying of them gets to eaten. trying to discover the underlying naming mechanism that the author has been using. Like I feel like these are all like quote unquote cool names, but okay. So we've got. <laughs> Dave Stevens, transportation director. You've met him already. Deborah Holland, security dick. chief. Huge we've, dick. We've met her very young. Deborah, the most perfect young woman who's ever lived. Got it. The most, the most, the sweetest temperament of anyone that Alan Grant has ever worked with, including you know Ellie. Another thing we used to describe puppies. Her. Yeah. <laughs> um, we soon meet Jerry Roberts, cook. My note in parentheses here is insufferable because <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's so bad. He's supposed to be cool because he knows about pop culture and endears himself to Eric by being like, I know all the words to the Jabberwocky, the poem. Um, That's not cool. I know. That's not cool at all. He's the cook. He shows up a couple times just to riff. Dan (laughs) Caulfield is the medical director. Ray Dixon mentioned in the first chapter that, that Andrew referenced, but not actually appearing until later is the communications director. I, okay. Ooh, that might be it. And then there, there are um, Chuck and Drew security guys. Uh, Chuck is the one who gets chomped. Aww, he is, he is introduced Kelly? solely to get chomped. Aww, poor Chuck. And there's somebody named Kelly. Kelly. That's the other security that's, guy. I think maybe or no. A, no, that's yeah. the helicopter yeah. pilot in book two. Oh is my named bad, Kelly. Yeah, he's in flyers, but not. <laughs> but not prey. Chuck and Drew are the security guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm mixing mm-hmm. up all the characters who are just like meat to be thrown around. <laughs> but these are, they're all introduced so quickly next to one another that it makes absolutely no sense as a reading experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It reminded me a lot of the original Jurassic Park junior novelization, which is one of the first episodes we ever did was Jurassic Park one, the, the novel for children. And 
it has a similar task because it's based off of a real movie, which is I, I simply must introduce every character because they exist. Mm-hmm. And the book is truly like, John Hammond, he was over here. And then uh, Alan Grant, yeah, sure, why not? And I, I had never seen Jurassic Park. And I came out of reading that being like, <laughs> I don't know anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what, you know, Scott Jensen was thinking, maybe just that, in order to be realistic, this place has to have like a pretty massive staff, even on Christmas break, because none of these people really do much other than Stevens. So and there's a Dave, a Dan and a Deborah. Yes. That's a lot of these. <laughs> and a Ray and a Jerry and huh. Chuck and Drew. Chuck And a Drew. Jesus yeah. Christ. Fascinating. And that's not even mentioning our team of antagonists. Yes, there's that's antagonists. Team. There's oh, team there's of antagonists. antagonists? <laughs> we'll, we'll oh, you mentioned teenage soon. documentarian idiots. <laughs> yes, right, I forgot. We'll get, there, we'll get there very soon. The only thing we've skipped here in my notes is that the reason that Eric is famous, aside from having been stranded on the island, is because Survivor is a book in this universe that he wrote. Incredible. But also, doesn't Survivor end on like a real downer where he's like, I'll never get off this island? Like, do, do yeah. we assume that he then wrote Survivor Part 2, Here's How I Got Off the Island? Or is it, it the Survivor we have is only the first half of his book? My my headcanon on this <laughs> is that the Survivor in his universe is very close to the one we have because the story of them finding him, like him being a supporting character in like that adventure, was so widely publicized that it's like... We all know the story of them rescuing that kid off the island and how they then got stuck and had to get off. But do you want to hear the story of those months the kid spent? That makes sense. Thank you, Andrew. And so the book probably ends the same way where he's like, and then a strange man in a cowboy hat pulled me up from the ground. And everyone (laughs) at home is like, it's Dr. Alan Grant. Yeah, so we get to the island. Eric is super disappointed because he is not going to be able to do basically anything. He's literally like being made to watch TV in, you know, their common area or what have you. And then, lo and behold, a plot happens. A, a detail I really like that the uh, island, they're basically doing the movie old and they're like, we know that these dinosaurs are resistant to certain diseases, and that's one of the reasons we're here, is to, like, cure diseases in humans. Sure. Just a thrown-off little detail. But the inciting well, that incident makes sense this- why you'd want to make sure all the dinosaurs live. That's kind of, like, the only justification that anyone's ever come up with, with, like, why do we still keep the dinosaurs right. around if we yes. can't make money off them? And it's like, science! Yes. Medicine! <laughs> funding is still scarce. Like, Alan is always stressed about it. And they're like, we need to start getting these immune these immunology breakthroughs soon if we want this money. Okay, got it. But gotcha, gotcha. Everyone's got different motivations. <laughs> Always. Always. It's the only altruistic motivation in probably the entire series, because every other one is we could make money off of showing dinosaurs to people. I mean, if there's one thing we know about the pharmaceutical industry, though... Making major breakthroughs in scientific advancements in the health and safety of human beings is also a money-making scheme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somewhere in the background is Rafe Spall being like, yes, money, this is it. Yeah, but you know who doesn't know that, Hannah? Alan Grant. Children. Oh, sure. <laughs> also Alan Grant. 
children are reading this thing being like, he is helping humanity. <laughs> I would still have an uncle if this was 10 years ago. That sort of thing. Um, okay. So the inciting incident of the movie, Mel, do you want to describe to Hannah what happened? The book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a movie so to cinematic. me. It was so enthralling. Yeah. Mm. Um, there is a group of, God, five, five. <laughs> is it five? I no, it's, it's four. It's four. No, it's five. Simon, it's like Chris, Matt, DJ, and Biggs. It's five. It's five teams. Simon, Chris, Biggs, Matt, and DJ. Yep, yeah. there's five. A group of five teams. I'm sorry, DJ. Oh yeah, DJ. another fucking D. Come on, yeah. man. And um, DJ. That's this this group of this motley crew of teens is so strange and and problematic in a couple <laughs> ways. So they are led. They're okay. Sorry, they parachute onto the island from a low flying plane, and. And they're that, teenagers? They're teenagers. The oldest of them, Simon, the leader, is 18. His brother, Chris, is 14. <laughs> Matt, which I don't have time to get into the politics of Matt, but Matt is a, quote, buzz cut blonde, a flathead 14-year-old jock who was good for heavy lifting and following orders. Now, I had never heard the term flathead before, and turns out it's like a multi-purpose slur, but it's, it's essentially calling him like the R word. It's essentially referencing like a learning disability. Whoa. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he's like a he's like um, a like a disabled kid basically who is only there for heavy lifting. Holy shit! Um, and who is a jock? And then DJ quote. A good eyes and ears man, even at 13. <laughs> it's just, this is like a bona fide military operation. And then Biggs, whose sole defining qualities are being fat and being the camera person. Um, he's a slightly and, and overweight. director. Yes. A slightly overweight 12-year-old. Um, every time he is referenced. 12. We need to know that he's overweight. Uh it's it's i mean that when was this written andrew like is this night like this was this one came out in 2001 so 2001 2000 yeah okay so i mean the fat phobic stuff is like par for the course but it is just funny to me that like every time we are referencing biggs we have to say quote he slammed the overweight teen into a tree well <laughs> his name is biggs his name is I mean, just to bring it back mal slightly this is like a stephen king group of bullies yes yes just like if you want to build the most traditional grouping of shitty teens here it is yes and in simon is in tradition truly the shittiest of them all in that he is like a out for number one sociopath um they're parachuting onto the island their Simon's idea is to shoot a documentary about what's really going on on this island, because a lot of conspiracy theories have popped up on the mainland about whatever secret projects might be happening. Yeah, um, human dinosaur hybrids for military purposes. We know we those know. do get mentioned in one of the books. They get name checked. Yeah. Um, what do, What do they think is happening? Like, I'm sorry. What are the conspiracy theories that they're looking for? Andrew, do you remember? It's like, um, maybe no, that the- I don't have them on hand, but a big concern for Simon is the possibility that someone is, that a, a, a dinosaur is going to stow away on a ship, which at first 
seems really bogus. It happened. Like, it happens all well, the time. <laughs> but it, it didn't stow away in the previous one. It was like being transported, right? Well, if we're talking about the T-Rex in Jurassic Park 2, yeah, it was being transported. But there's definitely... In one of, maybe not in any of the movies, but in one of Crichton's books, there is literally like some baby raptors get loose on a ship yeah. or sneak on a ship and like eat everybody. <laughs> and we know um, the pteranodons have gotten out. That's like yeah, they're one loose. of the inciting. Yeah. They're just in the world. They're, they're trying to prove that the dinosaurs are like very scary and very dangerous through their teen brand of like cinema verite. <laughs> so, like Simon wants to really catch like, you know, a dinosaur eating actual a danger. He's making a snuff film. Pretty much, almost. <laughs> he wants to, <laughs> and he really wants fame and fortune. Like he's really invested in his own success, and he will do whatever it takes to get it. I really can't stress enough that Biggs. Yes, sure. There's the overweight stuff, but he's a twelve-year-old. Also, directing like the, the film, the unbelievable irresponsibility to be 18 years old and to bring exclusively children a lot younger than you like what the fuck does this kid not have any 18 year old friends who wanted to do this with him we i neglected to mention that simon and chris have like fabulously wealthy parents and all they know is is wealth and privilege and that is made very clear that they don't really know how the real world works and so of course like in a bid for some kind of freedom or liberation from the shackles of of privileged wealthy living they need they need to like experience reality and um they don't want their parents telling them what to do anymore mm-hmm. or simon doesn't chris just kind of does whatever simon says chris's other defi- chris's defining qualities that he's good at baseball this is feels like very complex for what i assume is a 130 it's page book so many it's a hundred and like 19 <laughs> wow okay it starts, Simon paused long enough to check out his brother's face. Chris's eyes were wide. His lips parted slightly, just as if you were watching some great movie or baseball game. As usual, he was mesmerized by, like, Simon as leader. One thing Simon could count on was the gullibility of his younger brother and his brother's little crew. They'd follow him anywhere, do anything he said. It had been like that for as long as Simon could remember. They'd all grown up together in the same wealthy neighborhood. As the years went by, Chris and his friends had all become as bored as Simon with every expensive toy their parents could buy them. Chris, DJ, Matt, and Biggs didn't look up to Simon just because he was older. They looked up to him because he never failed to deliver what they all wanted most, actual adventure. It was Simon who showed them a world of real risk, from hot-wiring cars for joyrides and shoplifting CDs from record stores to crashing concerts and sold-out football games. They'd push the limits without yet getting caught. This trip was nothing like those little warm-ups, and they all knew it. Goodbye video game jungles and two-dimensional bad guys. So long, ultra-safe gated communities. This was the pinnacle, the riskiest game of all. How do we know that everything that can be done really is being done to keep the world safe from what's here? Simon asked the camera. They let the pteranodons fly off. They've been sighted in South America and Mexico. Some even think they've seen them in the Florida Keys. Each time, people have been attacked and shown up in emergency rooms with wounds that couldn't have come from anything else except one of those blood-crazed flying reptiles. But that's all rumors and stuff people are saying in chat rooms, Chris said earnestly. Like babies being snatched from strollers, there isn't any evidence. 
Simon beamed inwardly. He had been certain his brother would say something to that effect. Not to go all Fox Mulder on you, but evidence can be suppressed. Facts can be altered. The truth isn't out there, Simon said with a broad sweep of his arm. It's here. Biggs did a wide pan of the jungle, then turned off the digital recorder. Great soundbite. Wow. Yeah, they're just a bunch of shitheads, and they have, like, Bruce Wayne syndrome. In especially, it reminded me a lot of that like prequel Batman book I I read, which is they they have the thing going on where they're like, I'm tired of being supported by my rich parents. I'm tired that that mm-hmm. defines my entire identity. I'm bored. Kids, I and love none the... of these kids get eaten by a dinosaur. No, damn, they not don't. even one. Not even one. Did any of them get bitten or maimed or anything? Hurt. They, they are in yes they get ta- attacked by compies and they oh. get a little roughed up the um, little chicken ones yeah oh, i know what a compie is i got that for one. the listener <laughs> Hannah. yeah okay the grossest thing that happens in this book and it is gross is that at one point they go into a body of water a pond to escape something and bugs go up simon's nose and into his mouth explici- explicitly gross yeah, that is extremely gross. Pretty gross. So he wants to capture multiple types of dinosaurs. In his mind, the film is not complete until they've hit the the appropriate dinosaur milestones. Like they can't leave without getting footage of a super predator. Of and course. And the so, Spinosaurus is still wandering around. Ooh, it's still wandering around, but the actual the like main a bird villains just flew in my window. Into it? Yeah, like it just like hit it and bounced off. Oh. Damn. Apropos. Whoa, sorry. <laughs> My God. Anyway, go ahead. It's like a flyer inside a dang yeah. whatever that thing was, a subway car. <laughs> yeah. The um the villain dinosaurs in this are, are carnivores. Oh my the same, buddies. Little yeah, the boys. same from Disney's dinosaur <laughs> that you guys <laughs> mentioned on on your other ep on these books. Um tiny tiny arms. So, so how do these two plots come together? They're Okay, so the communications guy picks up the fact that these five teens have parachuted down. They don't know anything about them other than like, okay, we've got, you know, five bogeys on the radar. We have to find out what these people are doing. They're going to go out and basically rescue them because at this point it seems like an accident or something. Uh, And of course, Eric is immediately like, I'm going (laughs) to rescue them. And everyone's like, no, you can't go. Andrew, what are you going to say? Well, they're really... Not to, sorry to contradict you directly. No, please. Something I, I do to Hannah all the time with no shame. You have the books and read them later than me, so I have gaps in my memory. Totally, totally. And I love to put everyone else at a disadvantage. So mm-hmm. uh, the the thing is that Alan is not sure whether he's going to rescue them because mm-hmm. he has a stripped down staff and he like has, you know, he basically is like, I don't actually think that we can just wander out because what's been going on, there's an early instance in that scene where Deborah's like, you know, there's, I'm considering buying three big houses. They do end up, quote unquote, like fighting the dinosaurs and she has all of these tools to keep them safe without really hurting them. So it's She's like- She's got a minority concussive. report sound gun. Ooh, yeah, she got wow. like a sound gun. <laughs> Uh, she has the like concussive grenades that don't actually like you know hurt them or whatever. But he's like, you know, that was on our road. We were protecting our road. I don't think we can just go out in the jungle, just the five of us, and rescue these people. And during that debate, Eric sneaks off and basically uh, 
I know. So he's a little shit. <laughs> and no one can keep eyes on him at all times. Assign him a buddy. No. Duh. <laughs> Let, let's also talk about the implication that they crashed a plane somewhere. I mean, they never once mention a pilot that dropped them. They all just bailed on some, you know, propeller plane or something. Well, Crazy. Not, they weren't driving it, though. There was a pilot. They're rich. Okay, they well, hired they, some they guy. Hired some guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I love the, the implication that Alan Grant is like, they're dead to me. <laughs> like, he does not give a shit. That, like, I mean, five I could imagine yeah. from a character place to be like, look, every time Alan Grant goes out into the woods on a dinosaur island, people die. <laughs> and for him to be like, it's not worth it. I'm sorry. Nothing. We, we either can't help them and we lose our people. Mm-hmm. I can see that being within his character. It sounds like the book's not engaging with that. Crucially, it's it's Eric Kirby's chance to be like, this is what I wanted to re-experience the island and get back to like my roots as a feral child. And so I'm going <laughs> to sneak off and like do that. Oh, boy. And he is humbled almost immediately. <laughs> oh, that's good. The uh, there, There's a good interaction between Alan and... and um... Deborah before they go out after him or maybe right after they left which is Alan goes this shouldn't be happening agreed Dan said mildly and the boy Alan gestured wildly trying to put feelings into his words don't sweat this stuff boss said Deborah the main thing is to stay loose on the bounce it's like with Tai Chi where you take a step into the bl- into the blow to deflect it then use its force to your advantage direct its energy where you need it pardon Alan said Okay, said Deborah patiently. I'll say it my granddad's way. Gnawing on the bone won't get you any more meat. Now, Deborah, pretty shallow character, but it is nice that she's like, you know what's not going to help is you complaining about the fact that the kid ran off. He <laughs> did do that. It's true. So Eric encounters a pteranodon pretty quickly and almost dies. Uh, he like falls down a hill and it's only because the pteranodon clocks its head on a rock that he survives. Um, oh my God. I wish I had this bookmark. He has, he takes the craziest fall. It's like the fall from hot rod. He's like, <laughs> he, the, the passage is like, he's rolling down the hill and he, he hit a tree. God damn it hurt. Then he went through a bush and wow, that thing scratched him up. And it's like, then he hit a rock so hard. It like adjusted him 45 degrees and threw oh him down the mountain in a different way. Jeez and then he's Louise. like basically lying there going, I'm gonna die. And he looks back and the rock just also fucked up the dinosaur really bad. <laughs> I, I mean, not, again, not to jump ahead, but I do appreciate that in Flyers, there's a point where he's like, the only ones that I really am scared of and don't know how to handle are the the Flyers. Like, yeah. I remember being picked up by them. It was so fucking scary. I couldn't do anything. I don't know how to fight these dinosaurs. The other dinosaurs I have a sense of, but like these guys scare the shit out of me. Yeah. And it's at the end of that section, I think, when we get the the name drop of the title where he's like, oh, actually, I'm not in control on this island. Everything on this island is prey. And <laughs> it's it's his, his dark night of the soul moment. <laughs> So our, our characters actually converge way earlier in the book than I expected. Did you feel similarly, Mel? Like, they, they catch up to each other, like, halfway through. Yeah, Eric catches up to the teens, um, yeah. the documentarians, and they recognize him, of course, but Simon is 
not impressed. Like he has to maintain his status as the group leader and that will necessitate some sort of cutting down of Eric Kirby a little bit. Sure. Um, sure. He's an older boy. I'm not going to yeah. let some fucking 13 year old <laughs> boss me around. I totally get it. <laughs> Even though I'm taking stage direction from a 12 year old. <laughs> yeah. When he catches up to them, there's like a lot of discussion about how they know how to engage with dinosaurs and it's revealed that they read basically every character from Jurassic Park's book and that they cre- created a set of rules by which to engage yes. with the dinosaurs. Some of them make sense. They bring up stuff from previous Jurassic Park movies where they're like, if we don't move, they can't see us and things like that. But at one point, right before they get in this big thing, like they basically get attacked by a dinosaur while Eric is with them uh, or right before. And, and they say... You know, if we act relaxed, if our body isn't tensed, the dinosaurs won't attack us, which I don't think is established anywhere in the trilogy. <laughs> That's horses uh, that I think yes, they're it's, thinking it's of. Like <laughs> Earth animals. Yeah. yeah. They also notably talked to Lex and Tim, which was a yes. fun reference. Um, they'd faked that they were doing a college project or something and got an and interview with And then showed up with a bunch Tim. of 12 year olds. <laughs> Lex and Tim are smarter than that. And maybe it was over the phone. I don't know how exactly okay. they did it, but they will. Yeah, they were like, but Lex and Tim said this. And I was like, oh, OK, well, we're, we're creating inroads. Um, <laughs> and Simon, yeah, it's it's even around herbivores, I think, that he's trying to act really relaxed and is like, if I'm just acting like I'm part of the environment, they won't hurt me. Uh, but they freak out anyway. Oh, Simon. Mm-hmm. I thought this that the Simon tr- naming might be a Lord of the Flies reference, but it's... Uh, I literally, <laughs> Mel, literally, we were talking about him, and I googled, like, Lord of the Flies characters to be like, is this... But Simon in Lord of the Flies is, like, that nice boy. Yeah, he's, like, the savant. Roger he's is like the evil sweetie. one. Yeah. Um, Interesting. <laughs> seems like a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Each chapter here has, like, a picture of a dinosaur featured in the chapter, so... They must be getting attacked by a triceratops in this. That's thing a styracosaurus, like but yes. <laughs> it says tri- no, it says triceratops on the page. Are they near? But what? Like, look at what they're near. Like, what are they actually looking at in the in the prose? Is it triceratops? <laughs> you to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay. Uh, no, that it's this is a weird chapter actually because it, unless I'm missing it. It really is them just... No, it's a family of Triceratops. Triceratops, okay. I want it to be more complicated than it really is. <laughs> no, no, it's a family of They have of to play the hits. Uh, this is a foreshadowing of where Simon's plot goes, and let's not give away to Hannah where Simon's okay, plot okay. goes, but he, um, he says the act relaxed thing, and then let's see, on 78... <laughs> Uh, Simon glimpsed Big still holding the camera. They're, like, getting attacked. Please let him be getting this, he thought. The Triceratops charged again. They were maddened, capable of anything. The mud beneath Simon's feet grabbed at his legs like quicksand. He could barely keep his, keep his balance. Uh, I'm looking for the Simon Chris stuff. Where does this happen? Uh, do, 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 do. Everyone had stopped. Chris and his friends had become statues, just like the Triceratops brood. They all looked afraid. Uh, a sudden, high, piercing shriek ripped across the silence of the night. It sounded inhuman and wild, terrifying. This is Eric 
simulating the scream of a triceratops or a raptor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simon had read a description of this sound in Eric Kirby's book, Raptors, he whispered. Uh, I seem to have missed the part, even though I had it bookmarked. I think the first thing I would do if I got back to that island was kill all the raptors. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) The first thing I would do would be to shoot all those fucking raptors. They are murder machines. The uh, the, the thing I was searching for is that there's a part in this where uh, he, Simon, basically runs uh, to get, like, the camera bag uh, while Chris and some of the other people are, like, about to be triceratopsed. And the book doesn't really point out that he's making a super fucked up choice. And then a page later, it's just like, and there there was Chris, and he was fine. And I like kept turning back and being like, didn't he just abandon him, essentially? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Simon's obsessed with getting the shot. That's his number one priority. And so, yeah, they meet up with Eric. Yeah. But Simon's like, let's not let him tell us what we can do, I guess. We have the rules. We'll be fine. Um, but they're not fine. Because is this when the Carnotaurs show up? Uh, let's yes, this is when the Carnotaurs show up. It's on ninety. This is the thing with the fireworks. Fireworks prominently featured in both books. Yeah, yes. hmm. this is because so, Grant and the staff are now after them in cars and hoping to rescue Eric and the teens. Coincidentally, also the teens. Yes. This is a, an epic Simon fail. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, it's a, it's, a, it's a Matt fail. I misremembered. Matt, Simon said, the bag, all that stuff from your dad's place. Now, Matt frantically dug into the bag and pulled out handfuls of fireworks. Simon looked stunned. But you said your dad was in the military and that he worked on special weapons. Where are the explosives? He doesn't bring that stuff home, said Matt. I had to make do. Kada, that's yeah. hilarious. Matt's only good for heavy lifting and following orders. We've been told this. Don't trust Matt <laughs> to be innovating with weaponry. <laughs> that really feels like when you haven't done a school project until like the night before. I yeah. can imagine Matt at home being like, "Shit, I told them I was gonna have explosives. I guess I'll go buy fireworks." I love he doesn't bring that stuff home. <laughs> um. So yeah, then we get the second coalescence, right? Like the the cars with the staff, there's two cars. They're closing in on these teens and Eric. Carnotaurs are chasing everyone through the woods. There's a lot of like musical chairs going on with like everyone leaves a car, but then we go back to a car, we're switching cars, who's in a car? <laughs> like Yeah. There's a ton. There's a great line too when when Alan shows up, where he's like, <laughs> he's like, "What is going on? More teenagers?" <laughs> <laughs> That's what this Just, book should have been called: more teenagers. <laughs> more teenagers. Yeah, exactly. And then and then Biggs being like, "I'm despite my mass, I'm actually a tween." Yeah. They, I just want to <laughs> call out that everyone eats candy bars at one point. Everyone eats a approximately one maybe two candy bars we are told that biggs has eaten four candy bars in a row jesus christ (laughs) um Um, so okay okay, so go ahead go ahead no no you go i was just gonna talk about (laughs) chuck's death (laughs) chuck 
Yeah, Chuck the... the who, we haven't even said the word Chuck yet, because why would we? They are oh, only did. introduced, introduced for one of them to die. So sad. Does he get chomped by a Carnotaur? He gets chomped, quote, instantly killing him. <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> At least there's that. <laughs> Wait, we also... Mel, we can't skip over when Alan has a brief word with uh, Simon. And he goes, how old are you? And Simon's like, 18. And Alan goes, good, you can be tried as an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a spot on Alan Grant characterization. He's like, I want this kid locked away for life. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, at this point, it really does become like, you know, everybody's chasing everybody type of thing. I don't even remember at what point the dinosaurs come back into it. But at a certain point, like everyone is running from from dinos. And it's the Carnotaurs, I think. Mm-hmm. Is it Carnotaurus or Carnotaur? I don't know. Um, they're the ones that have like spikes all over and they're really tiny arms. And Carnotaurus. Carnotaurus. And they get cornered in like a rock quarry. Like they're in a canyon by the end of it. Like we started in a jungle, we end in a canyon, I think. Yeah, um, no, it's definitely, it's it's very weirdly described whatever situation they're rushing through at the end so on 112 uh it's which a by Simon the time Tony you're on 112 with... you know you're near the end of the book <laughs> yeah it's weird though it's one of those situations where you're like i know i'm near the end but am i am i really six pages to yeah, the end yeah that doesn't feel like enough uh simon tunney ran with chris and the others after eric and his group i don't get it chris said you said we had another way off the island why go with them i need you to trust me simon said I always catch you when you fall, right? For as long as you can remember. This book is Except so for that time I f- ditched you to get speared by a triceratops. Hold on to right. that thought. <laughs> okay, Hold on to okay, that okay thought. cool, cool, cool. <laughs> also, I just love how, how much this book is about the dynamics of the villains. <laughs> Siensen's like, yeah, 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 Eric Kirby. I've done it, I've done it. I've got, I've got an idea of evil teenagers. Yeah, the hopping POV is is usually Simon and Eric. Like he does want to inhabit the mind of Simon a lot. Hmm. They ran towards the rock wall. At first, Simon saw nothing but darkness. Then a dull blue-white fissure appeared. Makes sense, Simon thought. We couldn't get deep enough into the jungle to get away from the Carnotaurus. Not in time, but we can slip between the cracks. And that was exactly what Simon planned to do. If anyone tried to press charges against him, he'd slip between the cracks. He had it all worked out. He was in total control. And then from there, they end up in like an underground cavern, essentially. And there's a very funny part where they look back at the fissure that they came through, like all the characters in this underground cavern. They look back at the fissure and they're like, it's too small for the dinosaur to get through. And then it's like the dinosaur burst through it. Nice. Yeah, really good stuff. Um, and then Mel, do you want to do you want to take the climax of this? Well, what I remember is that there is another opportunity <laughs> wherein Simon must choose between saving himself and the camera, or coming to Chris's rescue, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, in view of everyone, flagrantly leaves his brother to be eaten 
and even maybe says something he's like sorry chris <laughs> like Here we go. you haven't pulled up yet <laughs> simon had a clear choice his brother's life or the footage that would bring him riches power and fame by the way hannah the Siensen is just bringing up this bag way too much in the book to the point where you're like, it's either going to get destroyed and that's yeah. how like the footage doesn't get out or it's like someone's going to choose it over a human. So, uh, right. Virgin sorry, on Chris. Billy's lucky bag that he won't yes. shut up about and then it saves his life. Yes. Continue. Yes. Um, sorry, Chris, he said as he reached for the bag, but really he wasn't. There had to be <laughs> one heroic sacrifice. <laughs> Oh my really? God. He <laughs> there Send had, this child a, to jail. I don't I know. believe in well, jails. You might be satisfied with the end of the story. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's 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 so many fucked up things in a row. But really, he wasn't. Then there had to be one heroic sacrifice, one tragic casualty, and who better to create sympathy than Simon's own brother? In a split second, Simon knew he'd buy the kid a memorial, get a special song written. He could almost <laughs> see himself giving tearful, black-suited interviews on all those morning talk shows. Simon grabbed the bag and dived for an opening between two of the obelisks. Then a blur moved past him, yanking Chris away just as the dinosaur's jaws snapped shut on empty air. And then it turns out they recorded him being a fucking psycho. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the like, wow, this is perfect if my brother dies. It's like, yeah, so good so for the film. <laughs> fucked. Like that kid should get eaten by a dinosaur. That's a classic Jurassic Park. This guy is a piece of shit. And he should get eaten by a dinosaur. Behavior. <laughs> like, I he's get 18. He's, he's, he's 18. He's a legal, he, legal he's adult. A, he's a grown up enough that he should know better. If he can drive, he, he should, should not be able to get eaten. That way. Yeah, but he doesn't. He just he just gets captured. <laughs> the only other thing I have for this book, because that's really the climax. Basically, they they escape the dinos and then it cuts to like them, you know, being flown off the island or whatever. And and it's like uh, maybe it'll be in the, the passage I'm about to read. But at one point. Eric just looks up at a helicopter and like Simon is in handcuffs in the helicopter. <laughs> Uh, which I, I love the audacity of a book to arrest an 18-year-old. It's awesome. Hey, child endangerment, breaking and entering of a compound full of dinosaurs. I mean, I feel like there's like a there's a whole international laws that he's broken. Like he, All I'm yeah. saying is get some Romeo and Juliet laws for child endangerment. <laughs> That's why he All has right. to make him so unambiguously evil. <laughs> Yes, we need to know that he's been carted off at the end and he deserves it. <laughs> no, truly. I mean, that is such a great point. There, There is a version of this book where he's murkier morally and you end up being like, do they have to put that college <laughs> freshman in prison? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, this is a don't give me like he has the rest of his life ahead of him. He could have gotten all those young children Brutally eaten by dinosaurs. Yeah. I think he deserves some repercussions for that. Yeah, yeah our, our carceral per system is imperfect, but you know, there something be has to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think we also get Eric's resolution, or like maybe faux resolution of his feelings regarding mm -hmm. Enid, his home, and versus the island. <laughs> 
I don't know if that's what I'm looking at here. I have something about his character bookmarked, which is this passage. Um, Deborah grinned as the first rays of morning struck her face. Which is so Life young. isn't too generous with second chances, so don't waste them when they come along. Eric nodded. Yeah, I get it, which I thought was a flippant response. <laughs> He's like, shut <laughs> it. Suddenly. Yeah. I've clocked okay. more battle hours than he'll know. Okay. You're, you, you know, uh, you, you may look like you're in college, but I know you're in your late 20s. Lady. <laughs> Suddenly, the sound of a young man loudly cursing caught his attention. Oh, yeah, here we go. He looked up to see Simon Tunney in the doorway of one of the choppers. No sooner as he, had he stepped inside than a security guard had him in handcuffs. Uh, yeah, so that's not the Eric passage, but it's the comeuppance passage. Really weird. Really weird. Just to reiterate that Stevens just disappears from the book after the first half. It's like, he's such a fucking We have a dick. cast of 10 plus people in a book that is 120 <laughs> pages. Why would you do that to yourself? What happens to the rest of the They the go staff? home to their rich... Oh, the kids go home to their rich neighborhood. The staff is fine except for Chuck. Chuck is the only casualty. Like, does anything even happen with the rest of the staff? Are they like part of the adventure? I don't think we ever see the like cook Alan again. And- I think that's it for them. We see Deborah, wow. but Stevens gets a little moment where he, I don't know, drives a car really well, like during the Carnotaurus chase and says something like, oh, yes, I am the man. I think I wrote it down somewhere. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, here he I am so the man. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> that is that is Stevens' moment of triumph. But um, okay. we don't we don't really get a cool epilogue for each of the cast members it all wraps up real quick uh one question that i wrote down i literally have a note that says ask mel what's going on here which is um and maybe hannah you'll know this the the dinosaur stumbled back moving away from the overturned humvee this is the carnotaurus alan knew this dinosaur months ago he had stared into its eyes when the animal had been subjected to fear and humiliation and alan had had the upper hand there was no way he could have forgotten that moment from the way the animal was staring at him now, Grant was certain it had not forgotten either. You know who did forget? Me. I think that that must be the part in Jurassic Park 3 where they come across some carcass. Yes. And the Carnotaurus is eating it. And then the Spinosaurus shows up and scares it away. Yeah. It's in it for like two seconds. It like raises its head. And they lock eyes with it. Yeah, and then it has to turn tail. That's really all feels I remember like too. Grant is flattering himself by being like, <laughs> it remembers me. I scared it. That was me. It's also the same one that the for sure <laughs> that, that I saw before. Okay, wow. Yeah, real energy of like talking about someone you knew years ago and being like, Yeah, you know, like we almost dated. It really felt like we might. <laughs> He really looked up to me and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, Mel Castle. Yeah. You are... Uh, oh, man. Uh, you are a bag of it. fireworks. <laughs> uh-huh. You were illegally... No, you were legally purchased <laughs> in one state but then transported illegally to another because the mm-hmm. guy who bought you was like lived right near the state line. And he was like, I probably won't get caught for this. But then it ended up being a charge that was added to your friend Simon's prison sentence, mm-hmm. which, is, <laughs> which is pretty wild. They were like, we can get him um, on this for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Once you cross the state lines, it's a mm-hmm. it's a whole mess. Um, then it's human trafficking. <laughs> you're having sorry. That's the... something I love when like SVU pulls are like they took this girl into New Jersey. Human trafficking. Yeah, just I the most it. the most minor Better Call Saul spoilers from the new season. There's a part where he's like trying to get someone in trouble. And he's like, well, you're going to get this charge, this charge, this charge. And also, you, 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 the rental car you used was rented across state lines. So you're in big trouble for that. And the guy's like, you told me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Wait, so are you not allowed to drive a rental car across a state line? That can't no, be true. No, I think it's, 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 it becomes some sort of federal crime because they used it for a crime in oh, another state. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. okay. Thank you. Because you can never drive a rental car across state lines. And Hannah, are you admitting to that? No, no, huh? No, what? No. (laughs) Okay, so Mel, just to catch up, you're a bag of fireworks. You're purchased. You're flown to Isla Sorna. You're like, this is the adventure of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, everyone's disappointed when they see you Mm -hmm. because they thought you were military grade explosives. And then you're axel- accidentally detonated because I think someone drops a lighter on you uh-huh. and uh, it's a horrible, agonizing death. Oh. In your final moments, it's you have the option to- It's also your purpose for existing. So, yeah. Just, mm-hmm. just saying. Mm-hmm. saying. This is the angle I've chosen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's an orgasmic death, to be sure. Got it, got it, got it. it- in your final moments, and I know I've used this specific idea before, you can have like a death dream oh, okay. of the events of Jurassic Park Adventures Prey. Uh-huh. Having read the book, would you choose to do that? And also, would you recommend it to others? Is the alternative no dream at all? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would recommend it to others as a wonderful foray into again adolescent wish fulfillment at its finest um giving itself so many roadblocks along the way unnecessary roadblocks even so that you're sort of watching it combat it the its own agility course that it set up for itself with a bloated cast and (laughs) a lot of strange choices um but because of those strange choices, it is fun to watch the book do contortions to get out of them and finish itself off <laughs> um, with a flourish. So, yes, I think I would. Um, Andrew. Love you're... when the guests ask one. Oh, my, I thought I was supposed to. No, please do. Please, please do. do. Please do. <laughs> okay, I'm going off the cuff. This was not planned, but you are. <laughs> None of them super are. super prepped. Yeah. <laughs> You are a world-class chef. You have worked in the finest kitchens in the world, a globe-trotting magician with food. And you were given the opportunity of a lifetime to go cook for a skeleton crew of people on an island full of dinosaurs. Uh, You're also a really insufferable geek not that being a geek is always insufferable, but you think it is um, the thing that you have to tell everyone about at all times. <laughs> and you have memorized a lot of poetry. If you could memorize the plot, no, if you could memorize word for word, the book of Jurassic Park Adventures Prey, mm-hmm. and 
theme a menu off of it, really incorporate it into your oeuvre. Um, do you do it in, in an effort to really coalesce your expertise with your new job? I love that you're doing to me what I often do to Hannah, which is you've made me the character you described as insufferable. <laughs> He's the most <laughs> memorable to me. <laughs> I mean, Hannah, I often make you the one that's like the most morally upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not because you remind me of him. <laughs> yeah. Do you recommend no. it as a dish? <laughs> I recommend it as a dish. No, I, I definitely recommend this book if somebody is... Uh, a Jurassic Park three fan. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think you have uh, more Eric Kirby in, you know that you can deal with him more. I would definitely say read the novelization and Survivor first. The novelization is such a triumph, and Survivor is. <laughs> is I love that book, and Survivor is 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 pretty good. Um, I think this might be like better than Survivor, as you say, Mel. It's so stuffed with ideas that. It's, it's kind of impressive. It's like, why do this? Mm-hmm. Why put 12 characters in it? Uh, and it would be a giant steaming mess, except for the fact that he basically, Siensen just basically makes it a book about Simon that we're getting through the eyes of Eric Kirby. He's like, I just have this idea for a deranged child. <laughs> and I think for I could put that into my, my Jurassic Park book. What was that, Hannah? I was just saying wealth will derange you. Mm -hmm. You are too wealthy. It's a good foil, though. Like, I do think this is the story of Eric Kirby learning that he can't actually be in control on the island where he thought he was in control. In order to learn that lesson, he has to go toe to toe with another teen who thinks he is in control on the island. So he's like going up against the dark version of himself. (laughs) Yeah, it's evil Eric. Uh Definitely. (laughs) Sounds good. Definitely. Hannah Blackman. Yes. You are a 12-year-old film director. <laughs> you are very worldly. You've seen the you've seen the cinema of of almost every extant country and some that aren't extant. Right, the would USSR. You, mm-hmm. Mhm. No would longer you, extant. Mhm. No, I got mm-hmm. you. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> would you as a film person, not read this book, but rather listen to Andrew Overby and Mel Castle talk about it on a film podcast. Would, would that would that experience be rewarding for you? Well, um, there were twists and turns in the story that I didn't see coming, for sure. And hearing it regaled secondhand uh, really gave it a sort of vibrancy and, you know, life, which was fun. I, 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 it sounds like I maybe read the less good book that has less ideas in it and less characters I would be interested in. Um, but I'm not going to go back and read Prey. Like, I'm just not going to do it. You <laughs> didn't convince me. I think I've gotten all the richness out of it by way of this conversation, and that's good enough for me. What was that little voice? Weird. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's uh, you're 12 years old. <laughs> oh, right, I'm 12. I forgot. My voice yeah. is cracking. It's changing. Yeah. Uh, Mel Castle, what is it that you do and why do you do it? The why is very important to us and where can people find it? Sure. I, as you mentioned, am 
sometimes on a different podcast called the losers club, a Stephen King podcast. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. I identify as a writer of fiction and you can read certain things that I have written online. Um, I have a website, it's melcastle.com, but castle is spelled weird. So it's M-E-L-K-A-S-S-E-L.com. I'm also on Twitter at melcastle. That's it from me. Amazing. Well, Mel will be back with us next episode to discuss Jurassic Park Adventures flyers. And I I shouldn't have said it because now I'm going to read the crumb and you're going to (laughs) know. Please do rate us, review us, subscribe to us. Uh, We finally got a sub five star review. (laughs) That's not exactly true. Somebody just clicked three stars. Nobody reviewed it badly. Um, Oh, they didn't even leave a note? Mel, we have such horrific engagement that like the only people that have ever reviewed or rated our podcast up until like a week ago were people who are like i just like know them or whatever i'm gonna give them five stars and finally somebody uh was like you know what not zero three (laughs) i mean i'll take a three a three when i'm rating stuff on letterboxd or whatever is like a movie that's fine that's better than it's not hurting me it's okay yeah it's yeah so i don't know maybe we have to be happy with that I even think a two and a half on Letterboxd is good for me. It just means I wouldn't recommend it. Two and a half for me is usually like a movie where I was like, that was bad. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't great, but it's not like valueless, you know? I guess mm-hmm. I view two and a half as true neutral as like nothing was added or lost. That is yeah, right in the middle of five. Yeah. I know this, but like it feels bad to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, it is bad as a viewing. You don't want that to be your viewing experience. No. <laughs> The middle of five is three. Look, I can't get into this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> middle half, and half of five is thing. two and a half, though, you know? All right. Just review our podcast because we dropped from a five to a 4.8. So help ah! us out. Um, all right. And, uh, of course, this is a crumb. So do please follow the crumb to the next episode. And here it is. The tram passed a realistic-looking subway car torn from its track and a demolished police car near a gushing fire hydrant. Turning a corner, they saw Kong hanging from the 59th Street Bridge, a police helicopter hovering nearby. A King Kong book, probably. If only he hadn't given it away. (laughs) 